consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So we are both cramming this dish in in the middle of a work day, in the middle of a week. Actually, today, Wednesday at noon, is the exact <laughs> midpoint of the semester for me. Oh. And this is your meridian. We're just kind of winging it. But we have had occasion over the last week to be reminded. It's like, Oh, so-and-so listens. Oh, I didn't know so-and-so listens. And we've gotten like several texts of like, hey, with my friend who like loves your podcast. Hey, want to reach out? I love the podcast. And so more than ever, I'm aware that people are listening. Which is your uh, favorite thing, right? I have nothing. To quote John Cage, I have nothing to say and I'm (laughs) saying it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Tell us about one really phenomenal interaction that you had recently yes I got the most wonderful email over the (laughs) we're laughing because I've restarted the sentence like honestly three times I need to focus okay uh I got the most fabulous email over the weekend such a lovely surprise from a listener Jonathan 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 Bathard I want to like I can't say Jonathan Bathard it's a tongue twister a little bit um anyway Jonathan is a faculty member at the University of South Florida, is an anthropologist, but also a bassoonist and listens and decided to reach out regarding my Cougar Reed program, which is a um, thing I do for band directors in Washington State, where when they have need-based situations, they can request reads and I give them some of my surplus reads. And um, yes, Jonathan reached out and was like, could how can I support you? And uh, gave me a donation to help support the program. That is so stinking cool. And, and I'll be honest, there are times that that program feels a little bit like one more thing to do mm-hmm. or or just like, oh, God, is this sustainable? Like, I'm not a professional read maker like it. Uh, how long how long and then I get something that's a shot in the arm that's like okay I don't know how long but for now 
keep going. And mm-hmm. so it was just such a nice kind of like we were talking about last time, like just find opportunities to affirm one another because mm-hmm. you don't know how much someone needs it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, shout out, Jonathan. You're fabulous. You made me feel so special and so supported. And uh, thank you so much. I also want to shout out a listener named, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm going to massacre this name. Sigurd Grieve, I believe, who is a listener from Oslo. And they reached out via a friend of mine who was like visiting Oslo and they had occasion to meet and the podcast came up. The thought that people in Oslo listen to this and we're just like, what should we talk about today? I don't know. It's midterms. I'm I'm tired. <laughs> well, the wild part of it, too, is that, like, we're just talking to our best friend. Yeah. You know, like, at, but then, like, other people are part of it. And but it's so cool. Uh, yeah. The there's a person on uh, staff at WSU in the School of Music who's like a promoter and marketer. And he reached out and was like, are um, your double read podcast? Can I put that on the university's list of podcasts? And I was like, uh, we're not really like affiliated with the university. <laughs> it's more an independent project. And I was like just picturing like dishes about like double read dating, like being <laughs> at my job. On this list. <laughs> no. like, I was like, oh, gosh, I hope the provost doesn't tune in or the provost is taking notes about double read dating. <laughs> Ooh, how fascinating. <laughs> So speaking of like recording this dish in between things, I am coming to you from a hotel in Mobile, Alabama. You certainly are. Some of the wall (laughs) art is capturing my attention. But again, I I will try my best to focus. It's really distracting. It appears to be like a Siberian tiger with a... No, it's a zebra. A marching band hat on. Yeah, it's a zebra whose stripes are falling off. But then what's with the hat? The hat looks like the guards at the royal palace. I think the decor is supposed to be Mardi Gras themed. So that's where the yellow curtains come in. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you there for? Yeah, I'm here because I am going to play on a concert with Yo-Yo Ma. Oh my God. I can't honestly believe it. That's amazing. Um, Like we're playing Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony and then the Elgar Cello Concerto with Yo-Yo Ma. And I am 100% sure that I'm just going to weep throughout this entire concert. That's a pretty epic program. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just going to sob the entire time. Oh, that's amazing. Have they given you directions on like pictures? We have not been cleared for pictures yet. I remember when I was a student at BU, Renee Fleming came to give a master class. And I, of course, was not there because I'm a bassoonist, not a voice student. But she, I was in the hallway when she was walking down the hall. And I was like trying to act like I was texting somebody, but I was taking a picture. Very smooth. And like one of the people escorting her, like, like put his hand up and was like, no pictures. I was like, come <laughs> on. Let me take a picture. <laughs> Did she wave at you? Did she give you a little? No, it wiggle? was very crowded. It, I, oh. it was not a special moment between the two of us. Oh, bummer. But maybe Yo-Yo Ma and I will have a special moment. 
Maybe you will. Maybe you'll be like playing and he'll like turn around from the weird cello boxes that they play on. Yeah. And he'll look specifically at oboe too. He'll like turn around and point right at me. Like, yes. And be like, those were some nice low Bs, ma'am. Good response. I know that's not easy. (laughs) If that doesn't happen, I consider it a failure. ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read workshop in Minnesota run by Dr. Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,500 reads per year. Selling beginner bassoon reads, advanced bassoon reads, and contra bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing bassoon pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with read making. ACDC Reads is a proud sponsor of Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at www.acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast, Dave Wells, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at Appalachian State University. Welcome, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We love to start by asking our guests how they started playing their instruments. So could you tell us how you were introduced to the bassoon? Yeah, I joined band in fifth grade and I started on the flute because we had a flute in the closet. And so that was easy. And that was all right, but I wanted to move somewhere else. And I wanted to play next year the saxophone, but they're out of saxophone. So they handed me a clarinet instead. And that was also okay. Um, but I had knew I hadn't found my voice yet. And um, I was lucky enough to have an elementary school band director who was a bassoonist. And he did something which at the time seemed very, um, I don't know, sort of generous or or unusual, but now I, I understand exactly why he did it. He would, if you wanted to play a different instrument the next year, he would have you come to a little one or two week summer camp to get the basics of that instrument. So I think for that, for him, that meant that he didn't have to be starting a bunch of newbies all together in the fall. Okay. But anyway, that summer after my, um, I think it was after sixth grade, um, he decided he was going to start a bunch of people on bassoon. So he rounded up as many instruments as he could find, which I think was four, maybe five (laughs) and started a few of us. And, um, Mm -hmm. I took to it pretty much right away. Um, I remember pretty early on, I don't remember now if it was before I had the instrument in my hands or, or after, um, my dad playing a bit of the rite of spring for me and telling me that 
that thing at the beginning was a bassoon. I was like, what? This this can do that? I don't understand, but it's so big. Why is it playing so high? Um, and that was the sort of, I think, start of me being being hooked on it between the sound and the weirdness of it. Yeah, I still don't understand. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk us through, you said you took to it right away, but maybe deciding like, oh, I... I think I want to pursue this as a career path. And like, when did that happen for you? And how did that change how you approached the instrument in your youth? That took a, a bit longer. I was, um, I mean, I was a very nerdy kid. I mean, I'm a very nerdy adult also, but um, <laughs> I going to college, I was not sure whether I wanted to be on a music track or a science track. And by the time I got actually to, Applying to schools and things like that, I narrowed it down pretty much to either bassoon or archaeology. So I looked at schools that had programs in both. Mm -hmm. And I ended up um, at uh, Arizona State, which had great programs in both. And my advisor there, my music advisor, even when I went, like before I had decided on schools, um, she had worked out a whole plan for me and said, okay, it's much easier to switch out of music than into music. So why don't you start as a music major with an archaeology minor or anthropology minor, and then, you know, try it out for a year or two. And then if you want to jump ship and go over to anthropology, you'll be like on, on the track to still do that in four years. Um, so I thought that that was a great idea. And, you know, once I got there and was, was into, um, lessons and ensembles and everything, I realized pretty quickly that, that music was the real track for me. And I still did as much anthropology as I could. And, when in the summers, when some of my friends and colleagues were doing, um, you know, summer festivals and things, I went off and did field schools and was digging places. So I was having my fun doing that, um, which in retrospect, maybe wasn't the most constructive thing for my musical career, but it sure was fun at the time. Um, but my, my process of figuring out what I wanted to do with my career was kind of one of subtraction. I think, you know, all I really knew going into college was that I, wanted to, wanted to play the bassoon and do something with it. Um, and I think maybe the first thing that, that fell away was the idea of a music education track. And that was for a variety of reasons uh, with some experiences with music educators in my youth who didn't exactly inspire me to follow their paths. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at some point I was, you know, so I was sort of moving towards a perform, well, I was moving towards a performance path and that was my, my major but I didn't really know what that meant, you know, what I wanted to do with it. And at some point I, you know, in talking to people and seeing what people did on the audition trail and things like that, I realized, okay, I don't really think I want to do, have a full-time orchestra job. Um, you know, I wasn't really interested in, in the path to getting there or um, in the, what I saw as a very sort of limiting and, you know, my impression at the time is not necessarily the reality of, of what the job actually is, but, but I saw it as a kind of limited, like, Oh, I'm just going to sit in an orchestra and play the same things over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So that, that, you know, went away as well. And so what, what's left, you know, things like chamber music and, uh, college teaching. And, um, I, I don't know, I was particularly inspired in my undergrad, I think by my teacher, Jeff Lyman, who's now at, at Michigan, um, in terms of, mixing performance and teaching and scholarship and you know back to that uh nerdy kid thing um you know <laughs> scholarship has always been a very important part of of what i've i've done and 
Um, so I saw that as a, as a potential path forward, um, and coming out of college for lack of a better idea, went right into a master's program and coming out of that for lack of a better idea, went right into a DMA program, um, <laughs> and sort of solidified this, this sort of, of path, um, towards college teaching in that way. So can you tell us what happened after graduation with your doctorate and how you made your way over to Appalachian State? Yes. It, well, it was a kind of a long path to get to Appalachian State. Um, what immediately happened after graduation is that my um, amazing wife, Veronica, we, we weren't quite yet married at that time. She's a librarian and we finished grad school at the same time. And not surprisingly, there were more library jobs than bassoon jobs open right then. So she got a job at University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, and we moved in very short order um, out there. And I set about just sort of getting established in the freelance scene. And one of the first things I did, and I can pretty much track most of the things that I ended up doing in California um, to getting in touch with Nicolasa Custer, professor of bassoon at University of the Pacific, which is the, you know, the, the school where um, Veronica's new job was. And I basically went, went to, to Nick Custer and said, hey, I'm a recently graduated DMA bassoonist in town with very little to do. Do you have anything for me to do? And so we got together and played duets and got started to get to know each other a little bit. And she connected me with, with my first freelance gig, which led to another, which led to another, which led to another. Um, she also uh, roped me into um, Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition, um, which is a whole other side path. Um, but, you know, through that first gig, I met some people who introduced me to people at Sacramento State, and I ended up getting uh, an adjunct job there, um, and I taught there for 12 years. Um, initially hired to just teach, well, initially hired to teach one bassoonist, that was the entire studio at the time, um, and then another bassoonist showed up, and then I started to build the studio, and then they found out that I also have a degree in music history, so I started teaching music history and some GE classes. So I was always um, adjunct there, but and I ended up with a sort of with basically a full-time teaching load for the last quite a few years. Um, and, you know, that um, experience led me to, I mean, I had sort of always had the, my eye on the, the tenure track job and, um, you know, have sort of living as if I had one, you know, with the full-time teaching thing confirmed that's indeed what I wanted to do. Um, so I, uh, was trying to figure out how to make that make that work, and um, you know, I'd sort of applied to things on and off um, over the years, and I decided last year to get really serious about it. And luckily, there were a number of jobs out there at the same time, and so it was nice to get a bunch of experience right in, in short order like that. And when I came to interview at that App State, um, I left thinking, "Oh, this is really fantastic," but um, I don't think we're going to move there. Um, because um, Veronica had a great job in California. And then once I got offered the job, we started talking about it and considering it and realized that she was ready for a change and I was ready for a change. So here we are. Awesome. We kind of blew past the whole like masters in music history and actually your interest in 
history and placing the bassoon and bassoon performance in a historical context is really a big part of who you are as an artist. So um, could we kind of start that discussion by hearing about um, how you got interested in uh, music history and historical performance and how you set about getting experience and training in those areas? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a way that that has been a, a thread through my entire um, education and and life, really. I mean, one of my first musical memories it was uh, playing recorder duets with my dad when I was a kid. We were playing like Pretori Michael Pretorius duets and things out of Anna Magdalena Bach's notebook and and things like that. Um, so I had that that kind of initial exposure to early music in that way. And, um, it, at, in my undergrad at Arizona state, I played in a Baroque ensemble, a little chamber group. Um, and I was the only one in the group who did not have a period instrument. So they were all playing period instruments at a equals four fifteen Hertz. And I was playing my Fox two forty <laughs> down a half step. Um, <laughs> And let me tell you, F flat minor is a heck of a key to play in. <laughs> but uh, that got me my first experience with the historical performance practice, um, even though it wasn't the historical instrument. Then in my master's at Florida State, I played in some of the um, early music ensembles. Um, Stacy Spring uh, was there at the same time as me, and, and she was playing in, I think, recorder consorts and Sean bands and things, and she roped me in. To some of those and i had a lot of fun um in both of those kinds of groups and also a baroque oboe band playing the the tie the you know the um english horn precursor um <laughs> and once you're in one of those groups you have access to the instrumentarium which was just a big room full of stuff which was great and i discovered at some point that there was a baroque bassoon sitting in a cabinet unused unloved Ooh. um so I just got it out and started messing around with it a little bit. And I was working on the Telemann F minor sonata for my master's recital. And um, my teacher, Jeff Kiesiger, suggested at some point, he said, well, why don't you just try playing it on that Baroque instrument just to see what it's like and get, get an idea of how it could work, you know, how that might inform your playing on the modern instrument. Um, and as sometime as... I'm somewhat prone to do. I sort of took that and ran with it and did something he didn't intend, which was that I ended up performing it on that instrument <laughs> without any real training, except a little bit of help from some of the other people in the um, early music ensembles. Um, so that was my first time really playing, uh, you know, a period bassoon, certainly, although I'd been getting that other period instrument experience. Um, and through all of this, I'd, I'd been interested, more, inter you know, more generally interested in history as well. Um, so when it came time to look at DMA programs, I knew I wanted something that had a very academic um, thrust to the program. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I wanted to get more experience on historical bassoons um, and things. And so studying with uh, Mark Fallon at uh, Wisconsin was ideal for that because the program involved a lot of academics. Um, you know, Mark is a, I mean, he can play anything, but, um, he's a particular period instrument specialist. So I knew I could get that from him. Mm -hmm. And then it ended up in the program that we had to have a doctoral minor, which could be anything. Um, you know, I knew composers who had 
doctoral minors in environmental studies because their work had to do with writing music about nature and the environment. And that made a lot of sense for them. Most people did either, you know, most performance DMA folks did a uh, history or theory and I did history. Um, I also had a, an assistantship that involved being a TA for um, these massive music appreciation classes. So I was teaching a bit of history alongside that as well and getting to know the, all of the musicology faculty. And I realized at a certain point that the difference between a doctoral minor in music history and a master's in musicology was about one year of work. It was a lot of work, you know, a thesis, <laughs> comprehensive exams, extra coursework, all that. But I managed to finagle a little bit more funding so I could do that. So I just sort of put that in the middle of my DMA. Mm, I I didn't I didn't smart. like pause pause the DMA. I was still in lessons and all that through there. But um, I actually finished the MA the year before I finished the DMA. So I did it did them at, at the same time more or less. Um, and a, a lot of the reason I did that was to be a little more marketable um, when I was looking for academic jobs. And that has proven to be very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, now, at uh, although I am, my job officially is assist, assistant professor of bassoon at App State, I am teaching a, a music history class still. And I'm, I've been sort of rolled into the musicology faculty and I'm now involved in um, a curriculum redesign that we're just embarking on. Mm-hmm. which is which is exciting and and I don't think I would get to do that if if I didn't have the, at least that credential of the you know MA in musicology. Okay, so I have a couple of follow-ups. Um so you don't just play the baroque bassoon because I know you well. I know you also play the classical bassoon and the french bassoon and the Dulcian, I never know if I'm even pronouncing that right. Like you do it all. And so can you talk to us a little bit about like expanding beyond the Baroque bassoon? Is that kind of a natural part of studying uh, period instruments? And then I would guess like they all have their own fingerings. They have their own reeds. Like how do you keep it all straight and it just seems like its own universe and world what was that like delving into that especially for a listener who's maybe intrigued by historical performance yeah i mean it uh, it's sort of a natural evolution to go from the baroque bassoon to the other things i mean in, in a sense it's like a, a slippery slippery slope you know like you do the one old bassoon, you're like, ooh, but then there's that other one. Ooh, and then there's that other one. Oh, and then I could play this thing, and then I could play that that kind of music. Um, f- in a way, for me, I, I feel like my th- there's been a, a constant thread in my career of what what can I find that's weirder? What can I <laughs> what can I do that like what other instrument can I try that's that's even weirder than the ones I've tried already? Um, but. Um, yeah, I mean that that going back to to my educational experience a bit um you know when I went to study with with Mark Bellone I knew that baroque bassoon was something I wanted to pursue but one thing that I learned very quickly uh when studying with him was that he has a fantastic collection of bassoons and he's very generous with them. So when I studied with him he had I think four baroque bassoons and three were pretty much always in the hands of students. Um 
but you know, every now and then he would mention other instruments. And finally, one day I asked him, Mark, how many bassoons do you have? And he couldn't give me an exact number. It's like, okay, that's, that's a lot of bassoons. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and all that's to say that, that you know, as, as I started learning what he had, I, um, I had to come up with a, a lecture recital at one point and my, um, dissertation topic uh, did not lend itself well to that. I was writing about the history of the bassoon in jazz and, you know, I, I could have played some stuff, but what I was really talking about like existing recordings and things. So that didn't work really well for a, a lecture recital. So basically I constructed a lecture recital project that was an excuse to borrow three of Mark's bassoons for a year. So I, I borrowed three 19th century bassoons from him, uh, originals by, um, Savary, Heckle and Buffet. And, you know, um, he had, he's performed on all those instruments. So he was able to give me a really good instruction on them. You know, I mean, he went through, uh, the Paris conservatory under Maurice Allard. So, you know, playing the buffet was his, his start. So it was great to get that instruction from him, but also to play, play those others. Um, and so that was my, you know, experience playing some 19th century period instruments, my, my first experience doing that. Um, once I got more seriously into, um, historical performance in, in my career, you know, I, I went with Baroque first and then, um, actually had the opportunity to, to study a bit with Mark again at a, a summer program in Oregon, part of the Oregon Bach festival. And that was half Baroque, half classical, um, so that was my first instruction on the classical period bassoon. Um, and then I got, uh, a lot of these things really go back to Mark. And I think, uh, from having that experience playing those instruments, because there was, uh, what now, maybe four years ago, I got a, a call from a group in Austin, Texas that does, um, largely Baroque period performance, but they were starting to venture into 19th century stuff and they were doing um mendelssohn's elijah and um mark was playing principal and they needed someone who could play second and um i was able to use one of mark's instruments and he knew that i had done that played a bit on that instrument before so that got me my entry into that i've since played with that group um, a couple more times once on classical bassoon i'm just now prepping for a concert with them next month. Um, and I have a borrowed 1850s, I think, heckle for that, that I'm getting acquainted with now. Um, and I've done some other stuff with that, uh, with, you know, with other instruments, you mentioned the uh, other things with buffet as well. I've done, I did, um, Stravinsky soldier's tale on buffet with a whole, whole group doing everything on period instruments, which was just fantastic. And it, it's really interesting you know, especially with this 19th and early 20th century repertoire that we know so well as we just think of as, you know, modern orchestra pieces. Um, it's fascinating to find out how different they sound and feel on these, these older instruments. Um, because, you know, particularly in the 19th century, there was so much going on with different bassoons in different places and different sounds more, beyond just the simple French and German kind of dichotomy that we, we think of. Um, and in a way that can be a, a whole rabbit hole of, you know, okay, well, which bassoon is really the proper one for, for this particular performance? Is it what the composer 
new and expected or is it what they actually got or is it like mm -hmm. from and are you talking about the premiere or a later thing and i don't know so you can get all tangled up in knots doing that but it, it, even if you just get kind of close uh, you know it adds a lot of context and, and insight in, into what's going on and you know how the instruments blend with each other um it's often very different than how the modern instruments blend with each other how you know the relative volumes of, of different instruments um can be quite different as well and you know really that's that's at the heart of of why we do this um playing of these old old instruments you know, the historically informed performance on period instruments is for that understanding to to get greater insight into why composers wrote the way they did um how the pieces actually function on these instruments and you know particularly on on the the baroque instrument i've had the experience many times of something that i've played on the modern bassoon that actually works better is more idiomatic feels better sounds better on the baroque instrument and that happens really on on all of these these period bassoons i've had that experience with every single one of them in in one respect or another oh sorry i was just remembering the other part of your question about the fingerings and the reeds and how i keep them all straight is uh with difficulty <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah the, the the more time i spend on any one of one of the instruments the the easier it is to go back to so i'm at the point now where pretty much any at any time i can pick up my baroque bassoon and as long as i have some decent reeds you know i can in a in a practice session or two feel like i'm ready to go again on that instrument the ones that i've played less frequently like the the buffet um or um even the classical bassoon because i haven't played that one as much it takes me a little while so i have to you know look at my my sort of performance calendar and see what's coming up and make sure that when i need one of those um bassoons that's less familiar to me i have to start a little earlier in reacquainting myself with some of the details of the the fingerings um making sure that i've got reeds that are that are happy um at whatever pitch i need need them to be and that's especially with the 19th century stuff sometimes uh, a little bit bit variable um you might be at 435 or 440 or 438 or something um so i have to get that all all going but um with those i can really feel that like so some of that subconscious processing going on that say there's the bassoon that i played six months ago and then i put it away for a while because i have other responsibilities and and priorities and then i get it back out again it's always easier than the last time i got it out again it still may take me a while to get it back to the point where i'm ready to play it in public but mm -hmm. it's it's easier the next time so i i really enjoy that experience of going back to something that felt really difficult the previous time and maybe it still feels difficult but it's it's not as bad usually mm -hmm. your comment about um playing something on a period instrument and forming uh your experience on the modern bassoon is something we've heard a lot uh, but I feel like we've always heard it in a broke context. And maybe this is a little too niche. Maybe this is too down the rabbit hole. But I did wonder for a piece like the Mozart concerto that is so ubiquitous. Like, I don't know if you've ever played it on the classical bassoon or what. But I I, I feel like 
our discussion of that is always so siloed into the Baroque era and that you're unique and that you've had this experience that, yes, soldier's tale on a a period French bassoon. It's so unique. But yeah, I guess for something like Mozart, I wonder how that, what that experience, uh, you get what I'm asking. Yeah, absolutely. I've not performed the Mozart concerto on the classical bassoon. I've, um, you know, worked on it a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have at least a, a, a bit of a sense of it. And I mean, what, what, I guess one thing that, that sticks or the first thing that comes to my mind with that is about the, the second movement and the degree to which the different colors, the different tone colors in the different registers of the instrument, um, can sort of change how you I mean, maybe not a drastic change in, in, in approach, but they sort of suggest things about character that maybe we don't get so much on the modern bassoon, which is designed to be homogenous through the range as, you know, as much as possible. Um, but just some of the, you know, the, the classical bassoon um, in a lot of ways favors the sort of high harmonics of the sound. Um, and especially compared to the to Baroque bassoon, you know, Baroque bassoon, uh, and it depends on the exact uh, original maker, you know, what's being copied and, and of course, personal read styles and sound concepts and whatnot, but it tends to be much lower, much uh, in, in ter- you know, more of, of the, the fundamentals and the lower harmonics. It's really a continuo instrument a lot of the time. And so it's got that sort of bassy feel to a lot of it. Whereas the classical bassoon, it's, now prioritizing the higher harmonics it's cutting through larger orchestras it's projecting into larger halls and and there's a lot more i think there's a lot more connection between the classical bassoon and um you know the the modern french bassoon the buffet than there is between the classical bassoon and um a modern german bassoon say so there's it's got more of that that singing quality that vocal thing and you know we're all the time particularly the second movement of mozart talking about the connection to mozart opera to marriage of figaro and so i think feeling that vocal connection really just changes how we can approach that movement and and the kinds of things that we bring out in the sound all of this you know your um entrepreneurial mindset when you moved to uh california and reached out to nicolasa custer and started working at sacramento state um and even going back to your doctorate where you saw an opportunity to make yourself more marketable getting an ma in musicology this all speaks to like a very innovative and um uh, I, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for, but you, you seem to be a person who takes opportunities as they come and makes the most of them. You know, it, it's a really great quality. And I, um, when you were describing, you know, moving to California and starting fresh, um, I was really impressed by your initiative to reach out and start making those connections for yourself. 
And a lot of times networking has like a, a negative connotation to it. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about like the power of making friends in the field and how that can, um, you know, mutually propel everyone forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I know exactly what you mean about, you know, you know, that sort of connotation that network networking gets sometimes, or the, the kind of feeling that we have about it of, it seems like a very businessy thing and, and we're musicians and we're, we're not in the business world. We're in, in this separate artistic world. Um, but networking is absolutely critical to, you know, particularly the, the freelancer kind of, of lifestyle or the, or the portfolio career, um, sort of way of making a living. And I can, I, you know, again, going back to that, that first, that very first gig I had in California, I can think of a whole bunch of other people there who are to this day, close friends and collaborators, um, who I've done all sorts of projects with. And, um, you know, it's part of it's that, that we get along well and, um, they're lovely people and, and we work well together. I, I think there's a lot to be said for, um, you know, part of the network is, isn't just meeting people and reaching out to people, but it's, as you mentioned, you know, grabbing the opportunities that do present themselves and showing up very well prepared for whatever it is. Um, because if you do that, then the people you meet through whatever, um, project event, concert rehearsal, whatever it is, will remember that and remember that you're the kind of person who shows up ready to do whatever needs to be done and um, ready to work collaboratively with others. And that will lead to more opportunities um, along the way. And, um, you know, I think you're, you're very kind talking about the uh, sort of entrepreneurial aspect of, of my career or the, that, idea of grabbing opportunities as they come up. Um, some of it I think is the, or the flip side of that is that sometimes I find I have too many interests and ideas and things I want to do and too many opportunities and, uh, learning to say no to some things has been a, a difficult, um, difficult lesson as well, that I'm still, still trying to learn, um, with that. I know that a lot of people are, are in that space right now you know jobs mm -hmm. are extremely hard to come by and for whatever reason people end up in a place and it's sort of this idea of making the best of where you are and your current situation and you know how you do that successfully it seems like you've really hit the nail on the head of how you were able to make a very full career in a full life starting from basically nothing Yes. I mean, I think that there's a number of aspects to making that work. And, and one of them is, you know, getting up that the courage to reach out to people initially. Um, in a way, I think yeah. I was just that can very be really intimidating and hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that can make that a little easier, I think, is is if you feel well prepared for whatever it is that you're reaching out about. And for, you know, 
Like I, I mentioned when I when I first reached out to Nicolasa Custer, and the first thing she wanted to do was to get together and play duets. Um, and you know, partially that was just like a nice get to know each other, hang out, play bassoon a little bit kind of thing. But I think it was also a okay, can this guy play? Could I sit next to him in a section? Can I recommend him for things? Um, so you know, as soon as she asked me to do that, I got out all the duets that I had and and started working and and reminding myself of things and all that and luckily one of the things that she pulled out to play was the um mignone duo um that i had played a couple of times and is is not the easiest thing to sit, sit down and sight read but i had refreshed my memory on it and you know i think came off really well with that um but that's you know that's just one situation i think whatever the situation is um but you know particularly for for playing jobs i think that kind of thing is common, you know, to uh, meet somebody th for the first time, you may just need to go play a little bit with them. So if you can feel really ready to do that, I think that might make it easier to actually reach out to that person um, and be able to do that. And then that's, you know, with all, all those sorts of other opportunities as well, as things came up, I feel that um, I was able to do so much with them by taking that same kind of approach and preparing maybe sometimes over preparing for them so that I could always put my best foot forward so that all the new people I was meeting could see, you know, the best version of me that I could put out there. Um, cause I think that makes it easier for them to then, you know, want to work with you again and recommend you for things and connect you with, with those other things. And I think, you know, Part of that for me has always been that I, I feel like I've, I, I talk sometimes about specializing in certain things, but I feel like I'm a generalist in a lot of ways. And I think that has been very beneficial in my career that, you know, oh, okay. You need somebody to play second bassoon. Okay. I've, I spent a lot of time doing that. Oh, you need contra bassoon. I can do that. Oh, you need somebody to, uh, go, this is a real thing to, um, you know, go play a piece uh, in an art gallery opening and collaborating with, with an artist. And it's, a, there's this piece where you have to circular breathe for four minutes and play lots of weird sounds. Oh yeah. I, okay. I can do that too. Um, and I've just sort of picked these things up along the way, but I think there, there's also a particular mindset of being willing to try all of these things and to try different things and being willing to put in the homework to, even if it's something that that's is a bit outside my area of experience, um, you know, being willing to try it and prepare for it the best I can, um, so that whatever opportunity that is might create other opportunities in that area or other similar areas as well. So, okay. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about higher ed job seeking, it's a tough market and it's getting tougher every year with so many amazing qualified candidates um, graduating from doctoral programs. And it's uh, it's amazing when somebody wins a job. So I would love to hear your advice about um, job uh, job seeking on the higher ed market and, you know, what advice you might have for people who are looking yeah, it, it's a tough process. Um, 
I think one of the greatest things I can advise is apply for every job you can. So you will, like anything else, it's a skill. It takes practice and you need experience in doing it. I mean, there are people who get the first job they apply for and that's great for them. That was not my experience at all. Um, you know, and, and I think one thing that really helped, helped me, um, you know, as I mentioned in that, I applied for an, a bunch of jobs, um, in the year that I, that I got my offer from Appalachian state. And I certainly, you know, not all of them ask for the same things, of course, but there's a lot of things that are always going to come up. You know, you always have to submit a letter. You always have to submit a CV, um, often have to do a teaching statement, um, other various components that you get the chance to submit and think about and revise and submit a new version and revise again. And the more times you can go through that process, the better your materials are going to be, the better you're going to get at understanding how to tailor your materials to the particular job description, to the particular needs of each institution, to the interests of the people on the committee, to, you know, all of the things that are going to make your um, materials stand out in the ways that they need to. Um, and same thing for interviews, you know, the more times that you, and again, it's not that you're going to get the same questions all the time, but even just the more times that you go through that process of now the, the phone interview is more or less a thing of the past and we've got the zoom interview. So, you know, seeing that grid of, of people all looking at you as you're trying to sound intelligent can be very daunting. And so the more times you can do that and feel better about it and rehearse your answers and, you know, be able to think on your feet for the question you didn't expect and, and all that sort of stuff, the better you'll be able to present yourself and, and do that. Um, so that, I think that's one component, just, you know, get as much experience as you can in, in doing that. Um, and then, you know, if you're lucky enough to get the on-campus interview, uh, back to something I was talking about earlier, you know, prepare, 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 prepare. Um, I don't think I've ever played a recital program through as many times ahead of an actual public performance as I did for my um, interview recital at Appalachian State. Uh, and it wasn't perfect when I when I performed it there, but I sure felt a lot better about it because of how many times I had performed the whole thing start to finish before I went there. Um, and I think that, you know, selecting the repertoire is really important as well. And that, that gets also to that, you know, idea of, of tailoring it to what the institution's needs and the committee's interests are as well. Um, I knew that two people on my committee, uh, are also engaged in historically informed performance on period instruments. So I made sure to bring my Baroque bassoon and I played like a three minute Telemann fantasy. So it wasn't that much, but it showed I could do it. It showed that I had that skill set that was, you know, present in my CV, certainly, but that's not the same as actually getting on stage and doing it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that showed off that. I think, you know, catered to some of the 
the interests of the committee, it showed off my particular one of my particular um, areas of specialty that I thought would distinguish me from other candidates. Um, and I think finding as many of those things as possible in whatever whatever avenue that is for for you personally, um, I tried to do that in every aspect of the the process as much as I could, you know, in, in the teaching that I had to do in the interview, in the materials I submitted initially, in the answers I gave in the Zoom interview, all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, you spoke particularly about that, the, the fact that the market is flooded a bit with, um, with very qualified candidates. And so it's, I think that kind of showing off of your unique qualities, abilities, interests, um, at all stages of, of the process is, is of, of key importance. Can we hear about a favorite memory from a past performance? Yeah, I, I have a lot. <laughs> um, but I, I think one, one of the performances that will, that sticks in my mind, um, the most and, and I, I'm sure will, um, forever um, is yet another kind of strange, kind of strange aspect of of my performing career. Another opportunity that that popped up that I was kind of scared about, but went went and grabbed is I, I spent nine years playing with uh, a group kind of in the mold of Django Reinhardt's uh, Hot Club of of France. Um, that's you know, not traditionally bassoon at all. It's the traditional ensemble is um, violin, three guitars, and double bass. Um, and I sort of took the place of the violin in this ensemble. Um, and we got to play uh, a bunch of cool, cool things. But um, the the one that really sticks in my my mind was a time that we got to open two shows for Jay Leno. He was, you know, just doing his. Um, touring doing stand-up comedy so we were in this big hall it was i don't know 1500 person hall something like that and no one had signed up to hear us we were just there you know playing for 15 20 minutes at the start um and so like they didn't even know they were gonna hear music at all let alone um hot swing let alone with a bassoonist in it and (laughs) so like most of the audience probably hadn't seen a bassoon. I mean, not that it was terribly up close, but not that they'd like seen a, most of them hadn't seen a bassoon in such an exposed way before, let alone see somebody improvise on one. Um, but they just, they just loved it. And I remember particularly as we were walking off stage, um, at the, the first show, it was two shows in one day, um, walking off stage at the first show, the crowd was all excited. They were thunderous, giving us thunderous applause. We walk off and Jay Leno is just there in the wings, clapping and enthusiastic <laughs> and saying, great job, guys. That was fantastic. Like, what am I doing? I'm a bassoon player playing jazz, talking to Jay Leno. This is bizarre. <laughs> but it was wonderful. Um. Is there by chance a different kind of memory that you could share with us? Maybe something 
uh, funny that has happened to you on stage? Maybe embarrassing? Yeah, um, trying to trying to decide where to go with this. I, I'll, I don't know if this is exactly what what you want, but I'll give you one of the most embarrassing things that has ever happened on a stage. It wasn't exactly as a performer, but um, I so I was coaching once at a summer chamber music workshop for high schoolers. Great workshop. The kind of thing where uh, you know students get a uh, different ensemble, different piece, different coach every day, and they spend all day preparing that one movement or one piece, whatnot. So it's it's a pretty grueling kind of thing because you are meeting new, you know, working with new people every day. You have to prepare a performance every night. All of this, um, and. It, there were a couple of sessions. So towards the end of the second session, everybody's tired. Come in one morning, find out what room I'm assigned to and what piece and, and what group and all that. And it turns out I'm on the stage at this institution. So I go in, there are no lights on. Like, ah, I'm, I'm exhausted. I haven't had my caffeine yet. And I, the lights aren't on. Somebody's supposed to turn the lights on. So I go backstage. I'm like looking around with my phone flashlight I can't find switches for the lights. Like I can't find like regular light switches. Can't find uh, like I'm opening boxes and things. Like I can't find it. Finally, I find find some switches and uh, that are like poorly labeled. It says like orchestra, um, or says stage, orchestra, and something else. I press something and I like look out. I have to open the curtain to look out. Are there lights on the stage? No. Okay, not yet something else anything no and then i look out and i see the pit slowly sinking on the stage <laughs> and not and like in and of itself that wouldn't be bad except that there's a piano half on the pit half oh. off the pit oh my god oh no and so i dart back in like what what is going on like there's no sound because you know this is one of those pits that when it goes down, it's just like it's air pressurized. It's, yeah. 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 So it's just, so I hadn't heard anything happening. So I go back. I'm like, Oh my God, what's going on? What's going on? Press buttons. I can't do anything. I like, I'm frozen. I see this piano tilting more and more. It goes. And nope. I hear one of the worst sounds I've ever heard in my life, which is the piano landing upside down in the pit. And then I go back and then I figure out which button takes it back up now that time has unfrozen. And I raise it again. And yeah, this Steinway is upside down. So I go, just then, of course, the students are starting to come in. I assume this is not an upright piano. No, this is a Steinway Grand. Oh my God, Dave. And the students are starting to come in and I say, um, just hang out outside. We're going to start a little late this morning. I go find one of the, you know, the people in charge of the thing. And I say, um, the piano is upside down in the hall. Um, there was a mishap with the pit. And been like, been, I walked in and the piano was upside down. I have no I, 
I had, I had that, I had that thought and I was like, no, you know, I don't know if like, are there cameras in here? I don't know. Like, I don't, (laughs) so they, you know, start calling the people at the university and, and figuring this out and, you know, long story short, piano was insured. They got a new piano out of it. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, yeah. And, you know, some people, people after that, people had sort of a good laugh. I've got a photo of one of the other coaches who like posed like the wicked witch of the East with her hand, like coming out from under the piano and whatnot. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, we, you know, we tried to figure out like the, the people from the university were like, I don't think it could have been anyone from your group that did it because of this and this and this. And so eventually figured out is like, like the game of mousetrap, this, this immensely complex series of mishaps that I have, that I managed to set in motion. It's like the piano shouldn't have been straddling the pit and the stage. Uh, The controls should have been labeled. The controls shouldn't have even been active. The lights should have been on like all this other stuff, but man, that is the most, yeah, that's the most embarrassing thing that's happened to me on a stage. Oh my God. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) I would have been traumatized for the rest of my life. You have a really good attitude. It's, it's taken a while for me to be able to tell that story. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. Well, other than make sure that the piano is not straddling the pit stage uh, (laughs) fault line. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh, follow your interests and don't ever be afraid to be a student and start it over in something. My, my actual like historical performance career got started after I was already, you know, a professional and out there in the world. And I spent a number of summers being a student again and going back and often hanging out with people a lot younger than me, um, who had jumped on that bandwagon a lot sooner than I did. Um, which was a little difficult in some ways, but it, it was great. And I managed to have a, a long string of summers where I did that in some way, like, okay, during the year, I'm going to be a professional in the summer. I'm going to go and be a student. And I feel that has allowed me to grow in a lot of ways and open up new opportunities. So I guess all that is to boil down to say, don't ever stop learning. Don't ever stop finding new interests and pursuing them. And, you know, that also gets back to that idea of, you know, differentiating yourself in a, in a job search that, you know, if you keep building new skills and finding new things, you're going to have more ways to stand out from the crowd, more ways to grab those opportunities that do come along. That's amazing advice. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was wonderful. We really appreciate you spending this hour with us. Oh, thank you so much. I had a great time. All right. We hope you enjoyed that episode. It was fabulous. And the next one's going to be fabulous too. And so follow us on social media and enjoy. Galit, what's <laughs> who's next? I was just watching your face and 
just waiting to hear what came out of your mouth. I need some go-go juice. (laughs) I've still got work today. (laughs) Um, Next, for the next episode, we had an awesome conversation with Melissa Bosma, who teaches oboe at the University of Texas at Arlington. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go, my greens.